I'm Elizabeth Slattery. And I'm Tiffany Bates. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. This week, we're talking about SCOTUS advocates' pre-argument rituals, sports betting, and wedding cakes, and we'll interview one of the lawyers in Masterpiece Cake Shop, Jordan Lawrence. Well, I just want to say welcome back, Tiffany. We're glad you survived your final exams, and I I think you're seven-eighths of the way through law school. Yes, indeed. Thank you. Certainly missed you. Missed you last week. I think JM did a great job filling in, but he's no Tiffany. Thank you. Thank you. Um, We will give out honors and dishonors for the best and worst judicial opinions of the year in our final episode of 2017. So if there are any cases you'd like to nominate, please send them to us with a brief description of why the opinion deserves recognition as the best or or worst of 2017. You can send these to us by email at scotus101 at heritage.org, or also feel free to tweet at us at scotus101. So before we dig into the orders list and the the two significant oral arguments this week, um, I read a, a cute article Tony Morrow had this week reporting on a recent panel discussion at Harvard about how to prepare for and survive oral argument at the Supreme Court. So some of the panelists talked about their pre-argument rituals. Most of the advice was very practical and, and boring. Do moot courts, talk a lot, write out all the questions you think you might get and the answers you could give. Uh, But there were a few interesting things. Elizabeth uh, Preligar, who is an assistant to the SG, she talked about how she always has salmon for dinner the night before her arguments. And this is because it's a superfood, so it's good for your brain. And then the morning of, she said, I eat bananas, a lot of bananas, like two, three, (laughs) maybe even four bananas. How how does anyone eat four bananas? (laughs) I know. I'm pretty impressed that that one person could eat four bananas. Um, But anyway, she said, you know, apparently it's the only thing she can stomach the morning of because of the, the anxiety and the nerves. So she says, eat lots of bananas. Um, and and then uh, another another uh, frequent advocate, Kathleen Sullivan, she talked about, you know, always wearing the same suit. And she would wear suits basically until they wear out uh, and the same pearls and staying in the same hotel every time she comes to D.C. because she's not local. And then Lawrence Robbins of Robbins Russell, he said that he has this old pocket watch that I think was his grandfather's that he would wear and that he had like a... Um, like a, uh, a charm bracelet trinket that was a bathtub that he would attach to the pocket watch. And I don't I don't know why that was part of his ritual, but he would always wear this little bathtub. Maybe it's supposed to have a calming effect, like <laughs> remind you of like taking a bath. Bringing a little bit of whimsy to the Supreme Court. Uh, but anyway, I talked with our colleague, Paul Larkin, who used to work in the SG's office, and he argued close to 30 cases before the Supreme Court. And I said, you know, I sent him the article and I said, hey, did you have any any rituals? You know, tell me tell me the scoop. And he said, well, the night before argument, I would always take my beloved yellow lab out for a walk and I'd just run through the whole argument. And now I expected Paul to say something like, oh, I had a lucky pair of New York giant socks that <laughs> yeah. I always wore, uh, but but nothing that um, that's silly. But anyway, I guess the bottom line is to eat lots of bananas if you're going to argue at the Supreme Court. Yeah. And this isn't this isn't exactly a, a ritual, I don't think, but it's my favorite ritual related story about Mike Carvin <laughs> before Obamacare and um, someone, I think, called the police on him or just notified Jones Day that someone was – a homeless man was pacing outside of Jones Day in a trench coat. Um, turns out it was Mike Carvin. Chomping on a cigar, of course. <laughs> yes, preparing for his oral argument. Um, it's the funniest story. I can just picture him doing this before every argument. Yeah. And, you know, it's the only way to – 
um, get out his brilliance <laughs> practice. <laughs> well, turning to the orders list from this week, the court granted cert in, a, in one case, and the issue is when a state or local government can appeal the denial of a motion to dismiss based on state action immunity. So Tiffany and I, as Supreme Court nerds, were excited about this, but I don't know if our average listener will, uh, will be that excited. So the case uh, involves a subsidiary of Tesla, the electric car maker, um, which filed a, an antitrust lawsuit against uh, the power district where it's located in Phoenix, Arizona, based on uh, the, the power district apparently changing, uh, changing the prices. And uh, the power district argues that it cannot, uh, cannot be sued because of something known as the state action, doc- uh, state action immunity doctrine. And the trial court denied the power district's motion, and uh, it appealed. But uh, the issue here is, is whether it, it could appeal in, in that case. So we are uh, going to be you know, very eagerly awaiting <laughs> the, the briefing and, and oral argument and decision in that case. Um, the court also issued um, a couple unsigned orders that allowed uh, the travel ban 3.0. The travel pause, yes, the travel entry pause, pan- travel, yeah. <laughs> travel ban. I don't know what to call it yet. Um, but it can go into complete effect. It's making its way back through the courts, but the Supreme Court um, said it can go into effect. Justices Ginsburg and Sotomayor dissented, um, which is unsurprising. But I think oral arguments um, happened this week in in both the Fourth and Ninth Circuit cases. So we can expect them to be making their way uh, back through the courts. But uh, these orders were a good sign for um, the president um, in this case. Also, last thing from the orders list, Justice Sotomayor had a statement respecting the court's denial of cert in Floyd v. Alabama. This is a Batson challenge to jury selection in a capital murder case where the prosecutor apparently struck uh, 10 out of 11 African-American prospective jurors. So Sotomayor agreed that the court was right to decline to hear this case because I guess the defendant did not object to these peremptory strikes at trial, so his Batson claim was not preserved. Uh, But Sotomayor wrote, joined by Justice Breyer, that courts must be steadfast in identifying, investigating, and correcting for improper bias in the jury selection process. I think the court just heard a case last year out of Florida along these lines, so um, I wonder if Sotomayor and Breyer are already on the hunt for another one. Anyway, let's talk about the oral arguments this week. Yeah, so some big cases. So the court heard oral arguments in um, a pair of New Jersey sports betting cases, um, the New Jersey Thoroughbred Horsemen's Association against NCAA and Christie against NCAA. These cases were consolidated, um, and they're dealing with the question of whether a federal statute can prohibit Um, adjustment or repeal of state law prohibitions on private conduct or whether that impermissibly commandeers the states in contravention of um, some Supreme Court cases. So in 1992, Congress passed the Professional and Amateur Sports Protection Act. PASPA. Yes, PASPA, (laughs) um, which virtually bars all states from legalizing sports betting. Um, The law had grandfathered in, I think, four states. They were Delaware, Montana, Nevada and Oregon. I mean, I think they tried to grandfather in New Jersey, but New Jersey was like, pass. Um, (laughs) But then later, uh, they changed their mind. And in 2014, the New Jersey legislature passed a new law that repealed existing state prohibitions on sports betting um, with respect to casinos and racetracks. And the NCAA and other um, professional sports leagues sued. Um, and the lower court held in these cases that the state had artfully couched the law as a repeal, but that it was really affirmatively legalizing sports betting in violation of the federal law. 
So the state here argues that uh, PASPA unconstitutionally commandeers the states. Um, and in uh, two cases, New York against United States and Prince against United States, um, the Supreme Court held that the structure of the Constitution and the Tenth Amendment don't allow Congress to directly compel the states or require um, – compel the states to require or prohibit certain acts. Um, now, to be sure, Congress can preempt state law, but they didn't do that here because they didn't make it clear that that's what they were doing. So Justice Stephen Breyer asked Paul Clement uh, to explain what Congress's goal was in enacting PASPA, and Clement rec- uh, represents the NCAA and other leagues. And I guess Clement's answer was not um, sufficient in Breyer's mind, and so he chimed in. There's no interstate policy here other than the interstate policy of telling the states what to do. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. Um, and as you mentioned, Paul Clement, this was an all-star showdown between the former SG, uh, who represented the NCAA, and another former SG, Ted Olson, representing the state. And Clement's former boss. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so if I were a betting woman, I would wager that the state wins this case. Um, from most accounts, the justices appear skeptical of the federal law and so may decide to strike it down. I'm sure this will come as great news to 18 other states who, um, led by West Virginia, filed a great amicus brief supporting New Jersey. They say they aren't really interested in sports betting issues here, but they are concerned with the federal state balance of power. So the other big argument this week was Masterpiece Cake Shop versus Colorado Civil Rights Commission. This is, of course, the case of the Colorado baker, Jack Phillips, who refused to design a cake for a gay couple's wedding. So one interesting thing that I read about the case um, is that at the time that Jack Phillips declined to make this cake back in 2012, Colorado didn't yet recognize same-sex marriage. They had a constitutional amendment uh, defining marriages between a man and a woman. Uh, But nevertheless, the state's Civil Rights Commission found Jack Phillips had engaged in sexual orientation discrimination. So I thought that was kind of an interesting footnote uh, about the case. And I was surprised it was something that I hadn't, um, you know, that people hadn't really been talking about before. So earlier this week, I spoke with one of the attorneys for the baker about how the oral argument went. We're pleased to have Jordan Lawrence with us today. He's senior counsel at Alliance Defending Freedom, and he served on the legal teams for many of their Supreme Court cases, including Masterpiece Cake Shop and Trinity Lutheran. Welcome to SCOTUS 101, Jordan. It is great to be here. I feel like I've achieved a life goal by being on this uh, broadcast. (laughs) So you've come to us straight from the Supreme Court in the Masterpiece Cake Shop case. Tell us, what do you think the key takeaways from the argument were? I with I am cautiously optimistic that Jack Phillips, the cake shop owner and Masterpiece Cake Shop, are going to win on a five to four vote that I think Kennedy was definitely tracking with the uh, our arguments. I work for Alliance of Any Freedom and we were representing Jack. He was definitely tracking with our arguments and not with the um, some of the liberals that were trying to undermine this. So uh, uh, that it was we're coming away good. Paul Clement has a statement that he says at the end of an oral argument, would you rather be us or would you rather be them, uh, your opponents? And I would rather be us after this one. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, all eyes are naturally on Justice Kennedy in this case. On the one hand, he wrote the majority opinions in Obergefell and Romer versus Evans, also out of Colorado. But on the other hand, he cares deeply about free free speech and free exercise. Uh, did he have any particularly telling questions? Yes, I think that he did. And and I think that um, uh, that there was a uh, – like a possible kind of 
way of looking at it that we thought that he would be doing it in that it's where is the government coercion? And with Obergefell, it was uh, the government is denying recognition to these same-sex couples that want to get married. Uh, he's not convinced by the reasons given for the traditional definition of marriage. And so he said there's a, uh, there's a right to same-sex marriage. But he also called the beliefs against uh, defi- the beliefs that define marriage only as one man and one woman as decent and honorable. That's what he said in the opinion. And there were four other justices, so you would think that they would agree with that at least, and they just weren't humoring Justice Kennedy by saying that. And it and it definitely showed today that Justice Kennedy views this: the government power is being used to crush a dissenter who has decent and honorable beliefs. And uh, there were just a couple of key things, if I can just, and I'm looking at the notes that I wrote down when I was in the courtroom listening to them. Um, He said uh, that uh, Colorado has been neither tolerant nor respectful to Mr. Phillips' beliefs. And that was quite telling. He when the Solicitor General was up there, he quoted, and I got to go back and look at this on pages two ninety three, ninety four of the uh, of the appendix, I think to the to the uh, cert petition about uh, one of the commissioners saying that the beliefs that marriage is one man and one woman were deplorable or despicable. I can't remember. It was some negative word like that. And he kept pressing the Solicitor General, do you disavow this statement, the Solicitor General of Colorado? Mm-hmm. Do you disavow this statement oh, that these that these beliefs are despicable? And um, when the ACLU attorney, David Cole, was up there, he was trying to make this distinction that uh, uh, Jack Phillips did not turn them down because of the message that the cakes c- communicate celebration for a same-sex union, uh, but that because they're gay, that on the person personhood. And Kennedy said, uh, the identity concept that you're using is just way too facile. Mm-hmm. And, and he was just being very dismissive of very major parts of uh, the state of Colorado's and the ACLU's uh, uh, basic th- legal theory. So, uh, you know, we're feeling pretty good uh, <laughs> about that. But we'll, you know, we'll see what happens uh, when the opinion comes down. So I think Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg was the first out of the gate with a question today. And um, just based on the news reports, because the transcript is not out as we're right. recording this, she asked about whether whether Jack Phillips would have sold the couple a cake off of the shelf. And I think Justice Kennedy came back to that and followed up and yes. asked why a pre-made cake is an expression. Uh, why Jack Phillips wouldn't be, you know, uh, speaking with a message uh, conveyed in a pre-made cake versus a custom cake. So what, uh, what's the argument? Well, there? and let me give you some of the behind the scenes uh, stuff, because I've been helping Kristen Wagner, who argued the case very ably and very I, I thought she was excellent. She did her best. We've been working for weeks through courts, et cetera, and and uh, with her that. Jack Phillips basically makes custom wedding cakes, and then all his pre-made stuff are not cakes. So the question is always difficult to answer because there's no such thing in his shop, in his universe, as a pre-made wedding cake. So Mm -hmm. he said to this uh, same-sex couple, you can buy any stuff off the shelf. I'll even custom make you a birthday cake or something, but not a wedding cake. So then people ask, well, what about a pre-made wedding cake? And uh, Kristen's answer was uh, that uh, it it might be a constitutional violation of some other sort, like free exercise or expressive association, but it's not compelled speech because the creative process is already done. 
I personally don't think they even have to reach that question because it just doesn't come up in the facts of this case. There's no such thing as a pre-made wedding cake. I mean, I guess if you grabbed a bunch of brownies and said, we're going to make them into wedding cakes, but that's so weird um, that, uh, you know, my wife and probably you as well would not have wanted that as a substitute <laughs> for an actual wedding cake. A brownie tower. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so Justice Kagan asked a lot of questions about line drawing. Uh, she brought up hairstylists, makeup artists, and she said, you know, they've got artists in their title, uh, tailors, jewelers, and if any of their trades would count as speech. So how did the attorneys respond to these line drawing questions? The, the uh and and she did and 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 just to add just one thing to and the kind of the 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 in the courtroom the nuance of it was this is a totally unmanageable concept and what and I'm trying to remember exactly what Kristen said but I I can tell you from the practice courts the answer is it's not that something's inherently beautiful because even a crummy cake baker or a crummy hairstylist <laughs> is protected. The thing is, is that the hair doesn't express a message. The cake is used. It's multi-tiered. So it has a clear identity and it's used at a reception as part of this ceremony where the couple cuts the cake and feeds each other. And you have to have a cake, a multi-tiered cake. So it's this crucial prop, this crucial icon to the whole situation. So that's different than saying, oh, your hair, the hair that, you you know, the curls are really beautiful because it doesn't really communicate any particular message at all. So it's not that it's beautiful. It's that it expresses a message. And you can be a bad baker and still <laughs> communicate a message. Yeah. Kagan also posed a hypothetical about a chef who creates amazing meals but won't uh, won't serve a special dinner for a same-sex couple for a wedding anniversary or something like that. And Alito jumped in and and he said, well, his colleagues must be going to more elite uh, restaurants than he does because uh, he doesn't think that that, that counts as speech. <laughs> <clears throat> yes, that's exactly right. And sometimes we're getting kind of rescued with those sorts of things. These kind of hypotheticals. Um, now, Kristen didn't uh, say it this way. There is a premise that somebody might have kind of a weird belief like that where they, they come and say, oh, I can't have this and, you know, I don't want to celebrate your anniversary. But I think the problem is we haven't seen those kind of cases. Mm-hmm. We've had same-sex marriage in Massachusetts since 2004. We haven't seen these kind of cases. It's not like the dam is going to burst. There is a premise to the question that I think is unrealistic, that there's all these – like hundreds or thousands of businesses that are waiting for Jack Phillips to win so they can turn down paying customers, lose profits, Mm -hmm. risk social media outrage, get sued for discrimination to because of their bigoted beliefs. And I just think it's unrealistic. Jack Phillips is probably the only cake baker in Colorado that will turn down a same-sex couple. So I just think it's very unrealistic to concoct all these weird scenarios mm-hmm. because they're, they're just unlikely to happen. Yeah, and I think I read that Phillips, he's <clears throat> lost something like 40% of his business. That's right. Because he is just, he's cut out the, the wedding cake aspect of his bakery entirely for the time being. Um, so Sotomayor brought up, you know, the fact that the primary purpose of food is to be eaten. So this undermines in her, in her mind the fact that a cake uh, could potentially be a piece of art. So I, I don't know if she read the amicus brief filed by the cake right. artists, um, <clears throat> but it had really beautiful pictures of these uh, very intricate and elaborate 
they, I mean, they really are masterpieces, these cakes that, that these artists make. And, you know, I think maybe she should check out any of the reality TV shows right. that, you know— Ace of Ace of Cakes or Cake Boss or any of those, if, if she's not familiar with the fact that these are, you know, highly elaborate uh, and decorative cakes. And well, and then here and then if it's the, the issue is communicating messages, David French wrote a brief for the National Review Institute detailing these incidences where Walmart has been asked to make sheet cakes that are Confederate flags. Mm-hmm. Now, they're not the most, they're not, you know, Michelangelo or Da Vinci cakes or something like that, or uh, Ace of the uh, Duff, the Ace of yeah. Cake guys. <laughs> but there, there's a clear message, and you can see somebody saying, I don't want to make a Confederate flag cake, that, that they would have an objection to that. So Sotomayor, I just thought was, talking about facile, was just kind of like, uh, ignoring the fact that a cake can be a temporary sculpture or monument that clearly communicates a message. This couple, when they cut into their cake, what they wanted to ask Jack for was rainbow batter. Now, they didn't get to that. He turned them down before they told that. But they wanted to cut the cake. Here's a, a two guys cut the cake, pull out, not white, not chocolate, rainbow batter. So they're clearly communicating that a same-sex couple, same-sex couple can be just as married as an opposite-sex couple. And for them to ignore that and for Sotomayor to say, well, cakes are just food to be eaten, that's not at all what was going on here. So the Trump administration uh, supports the baker in this case, and Solicitor General Noel Francisco had divided argument time today. Yes. What were some of the questions the justices asked him? They were uh, uh, – Sotomayor was one of the main nemesis to him. So she brought up the isolated military base where there's few uh, cake bakers and what if they're all the cake ba- – you know, the one or two cake bakers are against same-sex marriage. And, and Noel Francisco, I think, correctly said, well, that would go to the compelling state interest or least restrictive means. And if, if we had that kind of rare scenario take place – uh, they talked a lot about race, whether race was different, which he said that it was. And um, he also had <clears> – <throat> he ended with a great analogy where he was uh, criticizing the ACLU's argument that if somebody will do a certain thing for uh, one customer, they have to do it without discrimination to another customer. So then he likened that that said if an opera singer has a very famous aria that she sings and she sings – at the National Cathedral here in Washington, D.C., then that means it would be religious discrimination if she doesn't uh, sing it for Westboro Baptist. So she has to be forced by the government Mm -hmm. to avoid a discrimination claim to also sing at Westboro Baptist. And I think that was exactly correct. Yeah, I think he also brought up the fact that, you know, this clear line drawing issue goes both ways for for both sides. Uh, And he brought up whether an African-American business owner could be forced to – uh, to sculpt a cross for for the KKK. Yes, yes. And he referred to and I think that that's right, because you can think of a woodworker making a cross for a steeple of a Catholic church, and the KKK guy admiring and say, hey, you know, can you make one exactly like that for our, our cross-burning rally? Exact same product, very, very different messages. And uh, <clears throat> uh, you're just reminding me, I'm trying to remember who he's, Alito had a similar one. He was talking to the Solicitor General, who admitted that the order covers words and figurines. So if you wrote words, 
you could be forced by the anti-discrimination law to write phrases or sentences that you disagree with, which to me is just shocking that he would do that. And that was the the Colorado <clears throat> Solicitor General? Yeah, the Colorado. Yeah. Right. Okay. Not Noel Francisco. Yeah, Fred <laughs> Yeager. The, the, and, and so uh, Alito had – and at first I didn't know where he was going this. And he said, what if there's a cake, a wedding cake that says uh, November 9th is the best day and then some – White supremacists come and said, oh, that's the anniversary of Kristallnacht in Nazi Germany. We want a cake with the exact same phrase, November 9th is the best day. And so it's the exact same words. They sell it to a married couple, whether same sex or opposite sex. Do they have to sell it to the white supremacists or can they turn it down Mm -hmm. because the context matters? And I think that was an excellent way of of illustrating the context really does can can alter a message. So let's talk about Neil Gorsuch. Uh, he asked about the fact that uh, the solicitor, the uh, Colorado Civil Rights Commission, had ordered Jack Phillips to basically go back and train his staff how to avoid future violations. And he said, "This concerns me. If the state's compelling Phillips to train his staff that his his own Christian beliefs are discriminatory, how did the state's lawyer respond to that?" Well, this was a very interesting interplay that they had in the oral arguments because you could tell that some of the more liberal justices realized that uh, Justice Gorsuch was scoring some points with with this. So I remember Ginsburg said something like, well, you know, all this is is just like you're teaching them what the state law says. And I'm trying to remember if it was Justice Kennedy or one of the other ones. Well, isn't it basically saying – that state law trumps your religious beliefs. And, uh, and and you could just feel kind of the chill in the courtroom from from that. And and that it that to me shows how sinister these kind of laws can be. <clears throat> there were statements that I felt that the ACLU attorney, here they are dedicated to civil liberties, et cetera. And I mean, and some of the stuff they've said is, you know, good. I mean, there's some some cases they've agreed with, a lot I disagree with. (laughs) But to me, it was chilling to listen to them be so dismissive of our freedom of speech arguments that we are making in this case and that they were ready to justify compelling speech from regular business owners just just across the board as a comprehensive matter to enforce anti-discrimination laws. And it was just like, do you hear yourself? Do you hear what you're really saying? How in a free country under the First Amendment can such a thing be true? Well, we expect a decision. I, I would assume this will be one of the last ones, so by the end of June. But I have one final question for you, not about the Masterpiece argument today, one we ask all of our guests here at SCOTUS 101. If you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would you pick and what would you talk about? Uh, I think it would be uh, Robert Jackson from the World War II era. That uh, Two things. Curious about where he basically took this long leave of absence to go uh, try to be a prosecutor in the Nuremberg trials against the Nazis after the war. But also... Uh, writing about the West Virginia v. Barnett decision where they protected mm-hmm. the Jehovah's Witnesses were being forced to, to say the Pledge of Allegiance or kicked out of the public schools by uh, West Virginia officials. And how he was able – there was a contrary court decision, Kabitis, that was a couple years old. They're at the height of World War II, you know, Captain America, let's fight the Nazis <laughs> and the Axis powers and all this. And that the Supreme Court could see through all that – 
culture of the moment Mm -hmm. to see what's really long term in our Constitution. You have to protect the right of conscience and and that they had the strength of character to say we may be viewed as disloyal Americans that are promoting, you know, Nazism or something like this by letting the Jehovah's Witness off the hook. But it, that has turned out uh, the West Virginia v. Barnett is such a stellar decision. And he wrote and it's very, very he's a very elegant writer, too. I'd like to ask him how he wrote his opinions, too. <laughs> that would definitely be a good conversation. Well, Jordan, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. We'll wrap up with a round of Supreme Trivia Food Edition in honor of Masterpiece Cake Shop. And I'm going to try to stump Elizabeth today. <laughs> So, first question. In what case did the Supreme Court uphold a scheme prohibiting a man from growing excess wheat for consumption at home? Um, that's um, Wickard versus uh, Filburn? Yes, exactly. In the 1930s? In Wickard v. Filburn, the court held that Congress could do this under the Commerce Clause and that growing extra wheat to um, presumably feed his animals exerts a substantial economic effect on interstate commerce. And it led to an expansion of Congress's power in ways that we are regretting today. Yes, a horrible case. Um, Second question. Which case upheld a law prohibiting filled milk, which is skim milk combined with different types of fats or oils? (laughs) Oh, I don't know. Give you a a hint. There was the most famous footnote in all of constitutional law came from this case. Wait, is this Caroline Products? Yes. Oh, wow. Caroline Products, um, which was the first case to enumerate the rational basis test. Um, and as I mentioned, it's most famous for its footnote four, <laughs> um, which first talked about the heightened uh, scrutiny standard. I know um, the footnote. Systems. I don't remember the facts of the case at all. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, next question. What recent case dealt with a marketing order that survived the New Deal that um, requires raisin growers to turn over a percentage of their raisins to the federal government. Oh, I don't remember the name of the case, um, but I do remember it because uh, I, I wrote an article about it. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't remember the name of it, though. It was it was Horn, oh, versus, Horn versus USDA. Department of Agriculture. Yes, the court held that this was a taking um, under the Fifth Amendment because um, the raisin growers didn't get any just compensation. And yeah, then, wasn't the state taking, like, a huge percentage of their raisins? I mean, it was crazy. I think, yeah, I think it was a very um, large percentage. Okay. Um, so final question. Um, what sort of fruit juice was um, the subject of a recent dispute under the Lanham Act? It's a 2014 oh, case. Oh, it's uh, uh, palm, pomegranate. Yes. It's the palm, yeah, the palm case. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it was over pomegranate uh, juices. It was Palm Wonderful uh, versus Coca-Cola in that recent <laughs> case. Well, great job. Um, you did a, a really great job with today's trivia. Well, thanks for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. And please leave us a review if you enjoy listening. Please follow us on Twitter at SCOTUS101. You can also email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes. 